0: What a wonderful- hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Michael Levin. So Michael is an American developmental and synthetic biologist at Tufts University, where his research interests focus on bioelectrical signals by which cells communicate. His research opens numerous questions around regeneration, cancer suppression, and more of a top-down control of form and function. So with all of that, Michael, thank you so much for joining us and welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So Michael, let's just start with, um, you know, most of us have this understanding that biology is the software of our body and um, essentially is the building blocks of how everything works and functions. But I understand that you have a very different way of viewing this and you and your research. So do you want to just talk us through a little bit about that and why is it so different?
1: Generically, the view that a lot of people have is that the, uh, they view the genome or the DNA as the software of life. And then the cell uh, as the hardware that then interprets and and, and 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 acts that software. So I think there are types of biology where that's true. For example, thinking about proteins and you know su- subcellular kinds of like very small kinds of uh, properties. But but I have a slightly d- different idea. Uh, I think I think for many things that we care about, which is the control of body shape, right? So for regeneration, for birth defects, for things like that, I think that actually it's it's the other way around. And and what the DNA does is it fixes the hardware that every cell gets to have. So the genome specifies all the proteins, all the little micro level hardware that cells have. But then the interactions between cells and tissues and organs, uh, the physiology that's driven by and and enabled by this this kind of hardware, that's actually the software. And so there are really interesting ways now uh, using ideas from computer science, from behavioral science and other disciplines to start thinking about what are the cells actually doing with that hardware? So the decision making, the memory, the, the goal-directed activities that cells and tissues have in the you know pursuit of uh, homeostasis and other things—that's actually, I think, more fruitfully thought of as as the bio, as the software specifically because the notion of software suggests the notion of reprogrammability once you've decided that right that, that that your object is is running some kind of software the next question is yeah can we read it can we rewrite it and and can we do so towards specific desired outcomes
0: beautiful and so you've done a lot of your research on planarians the type of uh, worm that you said actually lives forever do you want to talk us a bit more about that and, and how you can uh, cut it up into uh, what's the max 200 times and it can grow back?
1: Yeah, in in, in my lab, we use a variety of model systems. We use uh, ant colonies and bacteria and slime molds and frog embryos and uh, human cells and culture and also planaria. And the thing about planaria and so, so m- many other labs also study planaria this is this is kind of an amazing model system it's a flatworm it is free living it's uh similar to our direct ancestors so it bi- has bilateral symmetry it has a true brain it has same neurotransmitters that you and i have so it's an amazing little creature and there are, there are many sort of fascinating aspects of it one one is that as you as you pointed out there really isn't any evidence for aging at the level of the organism so Uh, They basically, the the worm uh, basically typically goes on uh, until it divides in half. And what they do, the way many of them reproduce is by just tearing themselves in half. And then each half regenerates what's missing. And now you've got two worms. So they just kind of, they they, they go on. There's no obvious lifespan limit in this animal. They do regenerate. Just about every part of the animal regenerates. You can cut it into many, many pieces. Uh, I believe the record is something like 275, if I remember that correctly. But certainly a, a number of pieces cut in any which way. And the remarkable thing is that every piece of that worm knows exactly what a correct worm is supposed to look like and regrows exactly what's missing, no more, no less, to give you a perfect tiny little worm. And there's, there's other interesting aspects about it, including that they're very cancer resistant um there's some other stuff.
0: So how do you take that information then from this flatworm and you transmit it or uh, transfer it onto humans because obviously that's the end result and you're talking about cancer research how does that all work?
1: Yeah, so so it's a it's a typical kind of pipeline there are, there are many people for example studying cancer in fruit flies or even yeast. The thing that enables us to take lessons that we learn in model organisms and and then use them for for human medicine is that the kinds of mechanisms that control cell behavior and and shape and form and function and all that are extremely highly conserved so evolution always builds on what was there before and so very early types of you know the types of metabolic uh, pathways that were here since the time of unicellular organisms are exactly the same types of things that we use as humans and, and everything in between and so All of these things, you know, for example, the basically and so so my favorite aspect of this, which is the the ability of cells to form electrical networks that uh, compute and make decisions and so on. That in particular is a very ancient. It was it started around the time of bacterial biofilms and it's been found to exist everywhere that it's been sought, including in, in humans. So these kinds of things are very well conserved. So now, of course, some things are going to be different. And that's what uh, clinical research is all about, which, which I do not do. I don't do clinical research. I'm a basic scientist and my group does uh, basic science. But then we work with clinicians and try to move the discoveries that we make towards biomedical application. But th- the idea is, is to take these very basic, very um, generic lessons that we learn in these other model systems and then use it in medicine.
0: Brilliant. So I understand that in the conversation with Lex Freeman, you mentioned something to the effects that there is no cellular attempt perfection, but just a kind of priorities, you know, act now, active inference, minimize surprise, optimize efficiency. What are these and how did you come to them?
1: Yeah. So, so one of the things that we try to do in order to understand life is we try to uh make hypotheses about what are the really fundamental things that all cells are doing to enable them to do the, some of the most amazing things uh, that that we see them uh, achieve and let's let's just run through a very quick list of those things right so so what do we need to explain well we need to explain how a single cell the fertilized egg is, uh, autonomously gives rise to a complex organism whether that be a tree or a human or whatever so self-assembly and self-construction is is one of those things Also really important is the incredible plasticity that is seen in a lot of these examples. For example, an early embryo, you can cut it in half and you don't get two half embryos. You get two perfectly healthy monozygotic twins. The ability of some animals to regenerate and so to rebuild their bodies when they're damaged. The ability to uh, store information and move it throughout the body. So for example, planaria that you train on specific tasks, if you then cut off their head, they will regrow a new head, a new brain and they still remember the original information which means that the, that some of that information was distributed somewhere in their body was imprinted on the new brain as the brain developed so the ability for information to move throughout the body right and so so there are many things like this so th- these are kind of the amazing things that we need to understand and so there are a number of of uh, hypotheses or theories about what is it that cells are fundamentally doing or living things are fundamentally doing? And the ones you mentioned are, uh, I think, a very powerful and very useful set of frameworks developed by people like Carl Friston. So this is this is the active inference framework and, and perceptual control theory before that. And so this is basically the idea that what living things fundamentally do is they try to minimize surprise, meaning that, you will survive, you're more likely to survive if you're not surprised all the time. Now, what what does that mean? That has many implications. One of the implications is that in order not to be surprised, you have to have expectations about what happens next, which means that you have to have taken all the experiences you've had until now, and sort of compress them into a a model or a representation of what you think your environment and in fact, your own parts and yourself and so on, what that's like. And so so this is a view, it's a very um, information focused view that suggests that what living things are actually doing is constantly building up a model of themselves and their environment. They have expectations about what happens. And then their job is to Adjust that model given new evidence to uh, reduce the amount of surprise that they receive from the environment, and that kind. And there's m- many people working with that framework, and I think it's I think it's it's a very fr- and there's others, but I think that's a very fruitful one.
0: So with that, then what happens when it goes wrong? So, for example, one of my friends has a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a heart condition where the tissue thickens and scars. And obviously, there's many people with many genetic errors. Why does that happen then?
1: So there are many uh, issues that we obviously get in during our lifetimes, and many of them are not, in fact, genetic because some some are, but m- many are not. And I, I don't know specifically, I don't really have much to say about um cardiac um issues like that, but but one one that I think we can talk about that's that's uh, that's interesting is this idea of cancer, right? So oftentimes people ask, why, why is there cancer? And I think the better question is why is there ever anything but cancer? Because the real puzzle is that we start out, yeah evolution and and in fact we start out as single cells and then miraculously these cells work together towards large-scale goals so individual cells work towards little tiny individual cell goals so this is metabolism right having enough to enough to eat and various other conditions you know physiological states and so on so individual cells have these tiny little goals but cellular collectives do something amazing they, they work towards large-scale goals so when your embryonic blastomeres get together they are building on forming a human body with exactly five fingers on each hand and two eyes and various other things in proportion and in a correct or you know spatial relationships towards each other and so on. So that needs to be explained. And uh, what developmental biology is all about is understanding what are the interactions between these cells that allow the collective intelligence of the tissue to work towards these large-scale goals. No individual cell knows what a finger is, but the tissues of a salamander. The the absolutely no because if you cut one off it'll grow back one exactly one exactly the right length and then it stops so so there's information that the collective has that the individual cells don't have so that scale up right that scale up from single cell goals to 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 anatomical collective goals and then of course the animal as a whole has yet more behavioral goals and, and various other other levels above that so that obviously requires some 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 very uh, very powerful um, uh, kinds of dynamics to enable that to happen and sometimes they go wrong. And what happens when they go wrong is that when individual cells disconnect from this network, and and it's a chemical, but also an electrical network. So that's what we study, these electrical networks. So when cells disconnect from the electrical network, then the size of their goals, and and in my model, I call this the cognitive light cone. This is like the size of the, or, or the scale of the goals that you're able to uh, work towards right. The size greatly shrinks because the collective is able to work towards pretty large goals, making hearts and livers and 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 whole bodies. That's that's pretty large. But when the cells get isolated from that network, they're no longer able to plug into uh, to to those goals. All they have now are they 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 kind of roll back to their unicellular ancient lifestyle, and all they have now are little tiny unicellular goals. And when that boundary between self and world originally it was quite large and it was a whole organ and the whole animal, but then it shrinks and now it's the size of a single cell. And so now once your cognitive boundary is the size of a single cell, the rest of the body is just environment. As far as you're concerned, that's external environment. Every cell is some other cell's external environment. And so if you're not plugged into that informational network. You're just an amoeba in an environment and what do you do as, as a single cell organism in an environment? What do you do? Well, you go wherever life is good and you're, you're the dream of every cell, as they say, is to become two cells. And so then you proliferate as much as you can and this is this is cancer. So one sort of implication of that is that cancer, cancer cells are not actually more selfish than normal cells. It's just that their cells are smaller. Right? So many times in a kind of game theory approach, you might think that, okay, cancer cells are somehow very selfish and they're and they're not working towards the towards the goals of the body. And this is what's happening. I don't think they're any more selfish than anything else. I just think their selves are, are tiny. And so having shrunk back to the scale of a single cell, they do exactly what single cells do. Whereas a collective is a much larger self that works in a different space. It works in an anatomical and in a three dimensional space. So that, that, I think, is an interesting story about disease that, um, that comes out of this, this exact framework.
0: Totally. I mean, I've actually never thought about, I'd learned that um, different, so even within your cell, you would have the mitochondria, which was, you know, a separate little organism, as you were saying, each individual one, and then as it grows and grows and grows. So you would say there's actually an electrical current that binds this together. So every cell in my body binds together through this electrical current.
1: So, well, just to just to be clear, it, it's not just an electrical current. The currents between cells is the they are the the carrier of the messages. But what's important is the messages. So it's entirely possible that somewhere else in the universe, there are creatures whose parts are held together by some other kind of mechanism that's not electrical current. But that's not the important part, right? Here on Earth, I think that's largely what it is. But the important part isn't the current itself. It's the messages that are going through that current. Actually, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, I mean, think about this, right? You and I are big collections of neurons, among other things. And something has to be enabling these all of these neurons to work together together to make an emergent entity like you and me that have large scale plans and memories and hopes and dreams and things that do not belong to any of the individual neurons so you need to we need to look for this i mean i call it a kind of cognitive glue it's this it's this mechanism that enables individual components to work together to make a larger scale entity that has thoughts and memories and and so on that don't belong to any of the parts and so that in the brain of course everybody knows that's carried by electrical and and chemical and those kinds of and and maybe biomechanical signals that are exchanged among the among the cells and the same thing is true around for the for the rest of your body yeah
0: yeah i actually come from a psychology background myself and i find the brain truly interesting i mean it's mind-blowing um and now to understand that that the entire body the way that we look at the body through your you and many other researchers what you've found with uh bioelectricity yeah, it just it just blows my mind. But actually, I mean, this might go a little bit out there, but when you look at a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy with the chi in your body, um, where they say that there's an electrical current or chi or energy, and through pranayama, like breath work, or yoga, or whatever it is, you can actually move this energy within yourself. Do you think that that has any backing to it with bioelectricity?
1: I don't know of any evidence that it's specifically related to bioelectricity. So I think oftentimes people push those kinds of things together and they kind of assume that it must be the bioelectricity. I, I'm not sure. I think I think it may turn out that all of those things are very real, maybe, I, I don't know. But even if they are, I'm not sure there's any particular reason to think that they are identical with the bioelectricity that we study. I'm going to guess that there are many other types of modalities that exist in, in living tissue, that may be ones that we haven't even thought about, or maybe these kind of terms relate to various higher order um, kinds of properties like information states of the tissue. Maybe they're not identical with any physical kind of property. Maybe, maybe there's something, something kind of a second order informational aspect. Maybe what what people who work with that stuff, maybe what they're really talking about is information moving through the body, not not physical energy. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of people use the word energy for these kinds of things. And I'm not sure that's warranted. I think energy has a very precise definition in science, and I think it may do a disservice to some of these ideas to latch on to a, a physical implementation before we have evidence that that's what it is, because it may actually be much, much more subtle and much more interesting than that. So I don't know, but but I but I don't have any evidence that it's specifically related to bioelectricity.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's, it is just very interesting learning about potential things that, you know, humans have been studying for years or, or things that it can intuitively and understand that people can make inferences but who knows? Anyway, you, um, how do you structure or optimize your work and learning? And how has it evolved over time? Do you have laser focus solely on one thing or go down some rabbit holes and come across something interesting?
1: Well, it's kind of both and neither in the sense that I don't do a lot of deep rabbit holes. So I read about a wide variety and I, and I talk to people and I study things uh, kind of in a wide variety of of uh directions but uh i don't really um dive in unless there's you know kind of a pretty good reason that i expect that something useful will come of it i spend most of the time of focused on a variety of things i mean my lab we have we have 30 i don't know 32 or so people in the lab not to mention lots of other collaborators and and students and so on and so i definitely can't uh be all be a laser focused on one thing for too long because there are about a million things that need that need attention. So I work on uh, on on any, you know a number of a number of things at any one time. I have a kind of a, a large plan of of what we're doing, and then you know sort of drill down to specific things that are needed to execute for every part of our mission. And um, yeah, and that's what I work on.
0: And how do you approach getting cross discipline? For example, you work in cellular electrical uh, circuitry and memory. How do you know how much electrical engineering you need to know?
1: Yeah, th- uh, well, that's a good question. It's hard to know ahead of time what you're going to need to know. So I, I kind of knew from a from a very young age that uh, I really thought that computer science was going to be very important, that physics was going to be very important, that biology is very important. There are other things like chemistry, which I have zero background in, and that you know, and and other aspects like psychology and philosophy that I know a little bit, uh, but uh, but you know, certainly not an expert. And so it's a combination of trying to enlarge your toolkit as you go along. So if there's something that's clearly necessary, you can go and learn about it. Or the other thing to do is to um, enlarge your team and bring on people who are experts. So I'm extremely fortunate that I have a a group of people working with me who are experts on all kinds of stuff. They know many things that I don't know. I also have collaborators that are amazing in various fields that know lots of stuff that I don't know. And um, my goal is to be very clear about what I know and what I don't know, and then either acquire those skills or work together with people who do and try to push it all together in a way that is uh, more than the sum of its parts.
0: And how does your observation of biology affect your personal existential worldview? What is your opinion of where meaning emerges or comes from? Is there any meaning backed into the fabric of the world? Is it biologically or socially inherited, or is it totally up to us?
1: Wow, that's, uh, (laughs) that's
0: a deep question.
1: I think that, uh, well, uh, I mean, this is something that's uh, provisional and kind of changes for me all the time. So I don't feel that I have one sort of final answer that I've locked down on. I derive a lot of meaning from trying to improve the situation around me so both both in the scientific uh, term so so long term i would like to kind of increase the total of, of of knowledge right so so whatever little thing i can do to kind of help us know more tomorrow than we did yesterday so i get a lot of meaning out of that and at the same time i i, I do have hope that we can actually make people's lives better so so every week i get uh, probably every day at this point i get phone calls from people with the most unbelievable biomedical needs and and various kinds of suffering and disease and whatnot and I think that it would be uh, just outstanding if, if at some point, something that we did was able to uh, was able to actually help people now, right? So, so those are those are kind of the two things that that I try to, um, you know, kind of keep an eye on, and that's that that's where that's where my meaning comes from is to try, to try to advance those kind of
0: issues. It's interesting you say that because it's amazing and phenomenal to help cure cancer and regrowing arms and potentially unlocking immortality. But in this regard, like what does that mean for Earth? I mean, we'd have to expand into other planets or something because we have 7, 8 billion people, and each year that will gradually increase more and more. And so when you're starting to cure things that are curing most diseases, where does that leave us? I mean...
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not an expert on demographics, but my understanding is that over the history, when, when healthcare and health span improved, populations tend to go down, not up. And I think that would end up happening again. This is, you know, who knows? And then I'm, I'm not an expert on that stuff, but, but I suspect that what we're talking about is not increasing the number of people hanging around the idea is to increase the quality of life for the people that are here and you know i think i think sure expanding expanding off off of planet is probably a good idea long term that sounds great but i don't think overpopulation from too good of a healthcare system is not our big our big problem. And that's not our big problem we have we have massive issues that need solving and and uh, having people healthy and functional up until whatever their lifespan is and, and by the way i don't work on uh, yet uh, i don't work on aging and uh you know we're not we're not directly um uh, at this point we don't have anything that directly promises immortality or anything like that other other people do there's other people that work on that stuff but things are going to get much better when when we have people living productively into old age and uh, as opposed to um the amount of effort that goes to you know kind of sinking the patching up the sinking ship of a, of a, of a of an aging body i think i think the thing to do is to improve health span for sure that that's going to solve a lot of problems for us
0: mm. well, that's when i cuz i actually did um, a podcast a little while ago with a um, epigeneticist on extending life um and i feel like this this question just keeps coming up more and more and then i started to look into ai and the impact that that may have on our future and just looks like such an interesting place because things seem to be progressing so rapidly and when you discuss things like um, you know cutting off a mouse's finger and then having it actually regrow back or if you take something like a planarian and understand okay well what makes it live so long what makes its cells regenerate and you can actually push that over like the impact of that I think is just huge.
1: Yeah, I agree. And 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 just to be, you know, super clear, I am by no means the only one working on this. Yeah, there, there are many people working in regenerative medicine. There are many people working on uh, various d- very diverse approaches to to improving health and health span and what what the whole community has in mind is to really improve The opportunity for people to reach their full potential. So right now it's a lottery, right? It's whether you're born with birth defects or whether you're born with various physical or mental limitations or whether there's some kind of accident that happens that uh, reduces quality of life. I mean, all of these things are basically a lottery. It's a big crapshoot and it's completely unfair. And the disparities are, are, are massive. And so, what I think everybody in this field wants is for everybody to have the opportunity to uh, reach their potential and to do amazing things while they're they're still here on the planet. So, um, yeah, I do think it'll I do think it'll be an entirely new world when we're liberated from uh, the vagaries of, of of various injuries and things. I mean, just think about how how it used to be before antibiotics. If you got a significant cut doing something normal, you would probably die. You would you would get infected and in sepsis, and you would die. And that was just a complete luck of the draw at that point. And now we're more or less beyond that. And now uh, the vast majority of people who, who have that problem, eh, it's all right. You, you, get, you get it. You get some antibiotics and then you go on your way. So the idea is that with progress, you get, you get freedom from these random, unfair kinds of uh, limitations on, on what you can achieve. And that's, what, that's why we're here.
0: I love the thing with bioelectricity in the sense that you can actually look into how you can solve these issues without having side effects. So, with a lot of medication, such as even antibiotics, you know, it kills a lot of your microbiomes or has other impacts on your body. What it looks like your research is doing is providing all of the benefits without any of the side effects.
1: So, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim uh, there's a lack of side effects because anything that's powerful, any kind of an intervention that's powerful if used incorrectly, can do something, can have some kind of an outcome that you weren't looking for. So it's f- fundamentally, it's not that uh, we couldn't get side effects with this, but there is one aspect to this, which I think will, will greatly re- reduce that issue. Any kind of a complex system, like a living body or a computer or anything like that can be manipulated at multiple levels. So over, of, of multiple scales. So, so let's think about a computer. If somebody uh, somebody uh, had a computer and they wanted it to do something different than what, what it was already doing, but they didn't really understand how any of the higher levels worked, they might try to manipulate it the way you would a, a mechanical clock, for example. You would you might get out your soldering iron and, and some magnets and some hot needles or something. And you might, you might try to change the way it works at the very lowest level, at the level of the hardware, the material. And maybe you could possibly make some things happen. But if you have something like that in you, let's say, let's say you manage to change the properties of the silicon or the copper or something else, all kinds of things are gonna go wrong. You're gonna have a massive amount of side effect. Over and above what you were trying to achieve, because you're trying to address it at the lowest level of organization, at the at the hardware level, it's very hard. I mean, why? And and so and so why why do we not um, program our computers with a soldering iron nowadays? Right? If I, if, if on your laptop you want to go from you know Microsoft PowerPoint to uh, to 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 Word, you don't get out your soldering iron and start rewiring. Why not? Because because we figured out uh, something much better. There's a higher level of interface where you can give the computer stimuli or inputs, and you do that via your keyboard. And what you're doing is you're operating it at a higher level through an interface that it actually exposes to you by, by virtue. The engineers took care of that. And it exposes you this amazing interface that allows you to do exactly what you want it to do, ideally with no side effects, and other than what you want it to do. And I think that evolution did that for us as well. I think that living beings have multiple levels of organization. And yes, you can do what molecular medicine tries to do now which is to focus on the hardware so single molecule approaches genome editing crispr stem cell regulatory pathways those kinds of things and for certain things that might be fine I, the, you know that that's a good way to address certain kinds of things but for the vast majority of the things we care about, so so large-scale uh, body um, physiology, regeneration, those kinds of things, I think that's the wrong level, and I think that's why we're having all these side effects because we're basically uh, attacking it at the wrong level. And I think um, the body, living bodies, exp- uh, expose a variety of interfaces to us. One of them is bioelectrical, and that's you know, my favorite, but I'm sure there are others that what we could do is we could address it with a with a better interface that doesn't doesn't require us to manage all the details because we don't know all the details and it's never uh, easy to manage all the details. So I'll just give you a very simple example. So in the frog, if you look at the early tissue that's going to become the and this is the same thing in mice and then probably you know all other organisms, if you look at the tissue that's going to become the face, there's an electrical pattern that is there before the face is formed. That basically serves as a kind of memory of what this face is supposed to look like in the cells. And it tells the cells what to do. They build eyes and a mouth and everything else. So if you look at that and you look at the electrical pattern that is there uh, that directs the eye formation, well, we've learned to reproduce that electrical pattern somewhere else. So we can go and reproduce Now, the way we do it, there are no magnets, there are no electromagnetic fields, there are no electrodes, none of that. We use the animal's own electrical interface, which are these little ion channel proteins that are natively on the on the surface of the cells. And we use drugs and, and other optogenetics and other ways of turning those channels on and off. So what you can do is go elsewhere in the body, let's say on the tail, and induce the exact same kind of electrical pattern. And guess what those cells do? They see that pattern and go, well, we know what to do. We may going well, to we make an eye. So they make an eye. Now the amazing thing is that when we do this, we don't know how to make an eye. We don't know how to program how to program the creation of all the different uh, cell types that go into an eye. You got to get lens and retina and optic nerve. You got to get all that stuff in there. We have no clue how to do any of that. What we produce, what we do to those cells, is very simple. It's a very low information content trigger that's basically like a subroutine call. It just says make an eye here. That's it. We don't we don't micromanage the process. And so that is what allows us to. And and so what they do is they make a perfectly good eye, even though we have no clue how to make how to force the eye. You 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 might think that well what you would have to do is you have to specify all the cell differentiation and the stem cells and all the genes and that have to be turned on and off at the right places. No need to do any of that because the whole architecture is hierarchical because it's built on subroutines with with triggers, and that's why I think these kind of approaches will be able to you to induce very large scale complex outcomes like build a limb build a heart uh, build a you know build an eye without the side effects that for sure would have been there if we tried to micromanage the process. So for that reason, right, this hierarchical um, kind of interface, for that reason, I think it will be nicer uh, in terms of side effects than what we're trying to do now. But uh, I'm certainly not promising that any technology could have absolutely no side effects.
0: Mm -hmm. Because there's also various, I mean, you've got 3D printing now
1: as well. So there's a couple of things you can do. You can 3D print very uh, kind of simple um, structures like a bladder. So you could do that, you could 3D print a bladder. And you could 3D print uh, cardiac structures. You could seed cardiac cells onto a scaffold, like a decellularized heart that you got from somebody else. So those kinds of things, yes, you can. Nobody has 3D printed a whole hand. And I think it's going to be a very long time before anybody does. I think that kind of micromanagement where you really try to place every cell exactly where it goes is going to be incredibly hard for complex organs like eyes and heart and and limbs and things like that. I think that's very hard
0: would would you find that then with bioelectricity that would be easier that's an easier approach to doing something like that because you're using your own bodies
1: yeah that's the bet that we've that we've made so for example in our earlier work in the frog we have a cocktail of drugs that when you apply to a leg amputation wound you apply them for 24 hours and then the leg grows back for 18 months for a year and a half and you don't touch it again during that time so the point is not to micromanage that process. We have no clue how to control all the uh, cells that are needed to build an actual leg. We are only there for the first 24 hours. The cocktail that we put in is very simple. It does not, it only has five chemicals in it. It doesn't give all the information that's needed to build a leg. We don't have any idea how to build a leg. And so, and yet, but, but the animal does because it built two of them during development. And so, yes, I really think that's, that's a more fruitful approach. And that's why uh, that's what we're, we're going after it yeah, but I'm Do glad other people are trying other things, right? There's people making prosthetics and there's people trying three d printing. I mean, great. the more the more people trying different things, the better.
0: Well, the thing I actually like about um your research or your team's research rather than having a bionic arm. and there's nothing wrong with that. It's very cool, but i I feel like it really opens the door to having, you know, these subhumans where it's like, well, why would I have my own eyes when I can have these really cool robotic eyes that can see through walls? And then you start, I, I just feel like it it kind of gets into a very weird. Uh, I don't know, future, (laughs) you know, and the same thing with having that Neuralink. I also wonder what impact would Neuralink have on your own bioelectricity or, you know, your own current of your body, because this is having an artificial input into your brain that's artificially stimulating different neurons and neurological processes. I mean, obviously I don't know enough about this research, but it just seems to, you have your own body's natural chemical or electrical current, then something artificial.
1: Well, I guess I, I'll, I'll say two things. Uh, the first is this issue of uh, humans with uh, different uh, kinds of uh, feature sets, right? The different eyes and different, uh, you know, the different kind of features. I think, uh, you, you know, uh, you, you know the story of uh, the, I think it was in London, the first guy to go outside with an umbrella. Yeah. Somebody, the first person to go outside an umbrella, there was a mob and they, and they threw rocks and they were outraged. People were absolutely outraged because he dared, uh, to do this unnatural thing, which would keep the rain off of him. And, and so I, I think f- future generations are going to look back on all the hand wringing about different, uh, prosthetics and different uh, organs and everything else. And it's going to be just as, 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 as laughable to them because look, the modern human compared to an original natural human is already a superhuman. You got some glasses, because now you, I mean, that's a pro, that's an unbelievable prosthetic. If you're if you're in, in your 50s and you can see well because you got these glasses, that is a crazy prosthetic that that primitive man couldn't have even begun to imagine. Some people might have a wheelchair. You might have a a, a, a cane. You might have some some. You might have had a blood transfusion. You might have various other pieces of metal in your body from various uh, surgeries. The fact that you 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 have a toothbrush. The fact that you can maintain your teeth for. Five or six or seven decades is is a superpower that that again would have been un- unthinkable to uh, to to primitive uh, natural humans. So that ship has sailed. The idea of being a natural human has uh, that that ship sailed a long time ago. And the amazing thing about about humans is that we can use our our brain to get beyond these completely arbitrary limitations that uh, were placed on us by the by the random process of evolution. So so when you know kind of when the when the first uh, primitive man went into a cave to not get pneumonia in the rain. Like that was it. The race was on after that and, and, and setting bones and brushing your teeth and having glasses and having a uh, heart surgery and, and, uh, being able to, uh, regulate your neurotransmitters in the brain via a smart implant, because actually they might have been a little out of whack, uh, the way that, you know, you were born. And now, now you're much better. Like all of that stuff is, is just a smooth continuum from the time that people first wanted to do better than, than, than the healing over from these preventable reasons.
0: I would, I think the only thing is that all those things that you've mentioned have kind of been more, not necessarily external, but so anything that can be programmed can, can be hacked. So if you've got something that's programmed in your brain and, and it's, it's, Altering your electrical signals. How do you know what is your thought then, and how do you know what is somebody else's thought? If you have a bionic arm, similar to automated car, at some point it could potentially—and I understand there's always pros and cons—but it could be hacked and, and thrown off a cliff. Your your hand could start to come in like, if you have something imprinted into your brain, you wouldn't know if that thought was yours. So where do—and I understand this is probably more philosophical—but like, where does your thought stop and this other thought begin? Whereas with bioelectricity, going back, it is. I think it's just more natural because it is your own body's natural bioelectricity. There's nothing that can be hacked.
1: I'm going to push back on that because, I mean, well, well, first of all, the question I means, so you've asked a really good question is, is where, what's yours and what's external, right? Where does your body end and begin? So Andy Clark argues for the extended mind. And in that model, you and your cell phone and all of the things that it allows you to do your body. And, and ever since you were able to have paper and pens and and you had a notebook with you that remembered things that you can't actually remember in your brain and, and blackboards that allow you to write down things you can't store in your visual memory, all of these things enlarge you and they become a part function, they become a, a part of you. So for example, if you with a notebook and a calculator are this amazing engineer, then hiring just you without any of those things is really not getting the full benefit of what you are if we you know if somebody hires you to do engineering they want you with those things because that's the actual being that delivers whatever it is that you're delivering so this question of where you begin and end it's it doesn't stop at the skin i mean that's that's really quite arbitrary it's the functional it's all the things that allow you to be functionally whoever you are and the thing about being hacked and and thoughts coming in from the outside i mean look the days of not having thoughts in your head that didn't originate with you, those days are over a long time ago. Ever since ever since people started telling stories and writing books, and then eventually having internet and staring at, at our phones, that's it. Our, our heads are full of thoughts. We are being hacked constantly. Now, being hacked doesn't mean necessarily that, right? So there's another paper um uh, by a worker at, at, at MIT called uh, all, all, all Children Are Hackers. And this is absolutely true. I mean, the point of hacking is to use the affordances around you for various purposes and it might be good or it might be bad that's like like anything else but i would say many if if not most of the thoughts and preferences and everything else we have start have their origin somewhere else as a social species even even never never mind the internet but as a social species that's what we do all day long is we try to infect each other with ideas via via language and via storytelling and play and dance and who knows what else so yeah, I think uh, I, I think we are, we are all constantly hacking each other, and the idea is to try to curate that flow of information and influence. So that it is to your benefit and not to your detriment, and and that of and that of others.
0: Mm. I suppose also with all of that, with language, which is just such a beautiful conversation, because each individual word that you have is so deeply embedded with cultural history and so on, for us to communicate at such a fast pace and fully understand what each other are saying It's mind blowing. But oh yeah, but you would still have one fine. So if you have chips and soda or whatever it may be, you can still have one individual that could have a large influence over millions of people, whereas through language through culture. Culture, through song, you know, so on, it would have, you can only influence so many people and you can only influence them to a certain extent, you know, you,
1: this would be- I mean, but seriously, like, like, look at the examples we've had of, of, of individual lone lunatics that have, uh, through the power of, of speech and media have influenced millions of people to do the most unbelievably unspeakable uh, or, or conversely to inspire them you know to do great things too I mean that's been around for a really long time right ever since ever since generic media we've had and then books before that we've had the 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 ability for certain people who come up with ideas, that are really uh, kind of attractive and uh, that, you know, the, these, these kind of mind worm ideas, right. We've had people uh, control large amounts of the population and get them to do all kinds of things. Like that was here long before, because we have our own. I mean, that that's the interesting thing is that there's nothing about that neural link or any other interface. That's so different from what we are already doing. We already have an interface for getting ideas into your brain those are the ears and the eyes and the language capacity that is an amazingly rich interface way more so than than uh than, than any kind of neural link to get really complicated behavioral repertoires into other people's brains. And we've been taking advantage of that for each other f- with each other for a really long time. Very,
0: very interesting. Um, I just wanted to quickly go back to Xenobots as well. So I know that you've been doing quite a lot of work on Xenobots and I find truly fascinating. Um, so just wanna just talk to uh, the listeners a little bit more about your work on that.
1: Yeah, so, so this is the work of a team. Uh, in particular, um, we are close collaborators with Josh Bongard's lab at the University of Vermont. And so in his lab, uh, Sam Kriegman who's the PhD student, and in my group, uh, Doug Blackiston, who's the staff scientist that did all the biology work for it. And basically, the idea was simply this. Uh, we were interested in the question of uh, plasticity and trying to find out what our cells actually trying to do? Because if you look, for example, if you look at standard skin cells, let's say in a frog embryo, you would see that very reliably, so every single time, what they do is they have this this boring life as a two-dimensional layer on the outside of the animal. They keep out the bacteria and that's it. And you might think that, well, that's what the genome allows them to do. And that's all that they can do. So we are interested in plasticity and we want to know, we wanted to know if you abstract away all of the other instructive interactions. So basically take away all the other cells, just take the skin cells and put them alone and ask, what can they do on their own? I mean, you might think, well, they could do many things. They could if you put them on on their they could die they could do nothing they could crawl away from each other they could make a flat sheet like a cell culture many things they could do instead what they do is they come together into a spherical little little uh, shape like a ball and then what they do is they use the little the little hairs that they have on their surface normally they're used to redistribute the mucus down the body of the frog well they use these little hairs to row against the water so they literally they start they start sw- they start swimming and these xenobots which, which is what we call, we, we call them Xenobots because Xenopus laevis is the name of the frog. That's the Latin name for the species of the frog that we use and bot because it's a biorobotics platform. It's a platform in which we exploit the understandable properties of these cells to do work, for example, or to do other things. So turns out that these Xenobots have all kinds of interesting behaviors. They have their own developmental repertoire. They have behaviors. They do all kinds of fascinating things. And um, we hope that in the future, there will be lots of positive impacts. So, so not only useful synthetic living machines, so so programmable biobots that will go into the environment and, and clean up and do rescue, do do cleanup and sensing and re- and rescue and and uh uh re- you know, the environmental remediation and things like that, but also that we can use them as a sandbox to really understand the laws of morphogenesis. So, use that kind of a system to ask, what do we need to communicate? to the cells to get them to build whatever it is that we want them to build. Because once you crack that problem, that's basically the answer to almost all of medicine, right? So so birth defects, regenerative medicine, cancer, um, degenerative disease, all of that gets solved if we understood how to communicate anatomical goal states to cellular collectives. And we hope in this biorobotics platform to be able to learn that.
0: Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Like, I really appreciate it. And um, I will link all of your research papers in the show notes below. So if people are interested in reading more about all of these topics, um, it's definitely, definitely worth doing so.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you for having me and uh, thank you for the fun conversation.
0: And actually, before you go, um, I usually love to ask uh, if you had one message to share with the world, uh, being a podcast, (laughs) what would that message be?
1: One message to share. Um, Okay, well, I guess guess the one message that I would remind people of is that we have an amazing opportunity to use our various uh, gifts and energies to make the world a better place. That I would like people to uh, keep in mind that this idea that there is some sort of natural state that we need to hold on to and that the you know they should be scared of of scientific advances and so on i really think that has got to go and i think of course we need to be very careful and very mindful of the advances that we make but this is our opportunity to make life better in many ways the status quo is not acceptable for, for a large chunk of the population and we really need to improve it and we can improve it and i think we need to be excited about science i think science is the main way for us to uh to do better than the um you know the vagaries of of the natural world into which we are born and uh there's a there's an amazing uh beautiful future that's possible for us if we apply uh the energies that we can to uh, to make this a reality
0: thank you so much that was beautiful